Digging Up Ancient Aliens, the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do these claims hold water to a naturalist or are there better explanations out there? This is episode 41. I'm your host, Frederick. This time we will dive deeply into the Atlantis lore and meet a new personality. I hope that this will be the Atlantis episode that ends all future Atlantis episodes, but... Well, I hardly think that this will be the case, but we will look into whether Plato was trying to tell a historical account of Atlantis or if he had a different agenda with the story. We will also review the claims made by Jimmy Corsetti, also known as Bright Insight 6 on YouTube, that a geological formation called the Reichet structure is the location of Atlantis. Remember that you find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. They also find my contact info. If you spot any mistakes, you can also leave a comment if you watch this on the YouTube. And if you like the podcast or this video, I would appreciate if you left one of those fancy thumbs up or a five-star review, whether you listen to it or watching it. Well... I should not dilly-dally any longer. Let's dig into the episode. So, here we go again. Atlantis. The story that never seems to really go away. Or maybe a more accurate description would be the idea of a story that never goes away. Because that is, as we will learn, maybe one of the main issues with the story is that people are talking about their belief about what Plato wrote rather than what Plato actually did write in his book. Because this is what Jimmy Corsetti and so many others before him have done. And if you're unfamiliar with Jimmy, he hosts a YouTube channel called Bright Insight 6. Note that the name will be be a bit of a bait and switch further on. Now, Jimmy has a degree in communication and has been working as a theft and fraud investigator. This work background might be a bit ironic since he has fallen for Hancock's uh, and Randall Carson's less than credible ideas. I'm a bit unsure how Jimmy got into all of this, but let's review his videos and see if we can maybe get through to someone and maybe change some mind on the subjects. Now, Jimmy seems to be an intelligent person who has fallen for a bit of um, false ideas, but enough about Corsetti for now. Let's instead see if there's any truth to Jimmy Corsetti's claims about the Reichet structure being the location of Atlantis. But where do we begin an investigation of a claim like this? 
the most obvious place would be to see if the account is credible to start with. How would a historian or archaeologist approach this theory? First, we would see if there's any primary sources for the claim. And what do we mean when we say primary source then? Shortly summarized, it could be described that this is an original account created during or immediately after the event took place. It can come in several different forms, shapes, and even content for that matter. But it often splits up in two categories. The first one is manuscript. These are writing that were not intended for public print and are often handwritten in many cases. And if they are circulated, it will be in a very tiny scale, a small scale. It's often things like letters, journals, but even a laundry list would end up in these sections. Secondly, we have published sources. These are intended for the public consummation and have been circulated for people with the intention that they are supposed to read it. Here we put news articles, debates, memoirs, and public addresses from you know the heads of states. Something worth considering with these sources are that they are often edited and often have an agenda that we must consider when we are reviewing them. That does not mean that a manuscript would be totally free from an agenda, but they can be more raw since the author often did not intend for them to be read by a different person. Therefore, he has a sense of privacy, or she, when they wrote the account. And as an archaeologist, I would be a poor such if I forgot to mention that we also have artifacts and excavation that would serve as a primary source. Now, excavation can be noteworthy since it can corroborate what both primary and secondary sources are telling us. We always want to use a primary source in research and when we want to learn how and why an event took place. Now, this might not be possible for several different reasons, but we can use secondary sources. These often include books, articles, or other mediums. The difference is that they are not original accounts and usually have been selected from a different source to uh, kind of interrogate the past. Here with the secondary sources, it's even more important that we make sure that the author is actually relying on the primary sources and are themselves not relying on additional secondary sources. So, for example, for a book, if we read it, a good rule of thumb is that the broader the bookscape are the more secondary sources the author use. So if it covers a lot of different things, well, then we need to kind of be careful with this uh, source. But if it's a very narrow scope the book has, then it's usually using more primary sources in its research and therefore a bit more reliable when we want to use it in our research. Robert Williams has a great example in his book, The Historian's Toolbox, where he brought up the 1C protocol, for example. This account was documented by Adolf Eichmann during the 1E's conference in 1942 and discussed the final solution. 
But this is an obvious example of a primary source. It was written by someone who was an attendee at the conference while it took place. A secondary source would be any book that used this document to tell the history of the Holocaust. The secondary source using the original to interpret an event and tell us about it within a context. But even if we have the source material right in front of us, there is a critical question we must ask ourselves. Something that will become very clear as we go forward. Any historian worth the source must ask himself what the document's purpose was. Why was it written? Why was it published? We need to have this question in mind and then proceed with a good amount of skepticism towards the material. So, how many primary sources do we have on Atlantis? Now, the answer might shock you, but we have zero primary sources of, uh, to the above-mentioned specification. And you might rightly be a bit surprised about this. But even Plato stated that Critias the Older got the information from Dropides during a story competition, basically. Dropides got it himself from Solon, who heard the story from an Egyptian priest. And if we assume that the event in Timaeus and Critias to be factual, there is no primary source of the story. Some of you might object here, claiming that there are other sources for Atlantis. And I can hear you, I can hear you loudly typing your comment as I'm saying this. Well, I believe you might uh, gabbing about uh, Hellenesius of Lesbos' poem uh, he wrote titled Atlantis. While Hellenicus uh, predates Plato by almost a hundred years, the poem is not about the fantastic city of Atlantis. The poem was found among the Oxyrhynchus papyri within volume 11 and was designated with number 1359. These are a collection of papyri found around the turn of the previous century at what's known today as Al-Bahanassa. The poem is a literary work about the titan Atlas' daughters. You can read the translation and the original widely available online, and you don't have to take my word for it. So this poem is not to any help if you want to prove that there was a city of Atlantis. Some might now yell into the void that the authors after Plato talk about Atlantis. That's of course true, but the thing is that they have in common that they all refer to a single same source and work written by Plato. They don't add anything to the account, no secondary sources, no primary sources. They essentially just repeat what Plato wrote in Timaeus and Critias. So our only source is Plato, which is not a primary source. And when it comes to the historical method, we want to use as many different accounts as possible when we want to look at an event. The more we have, the more likely it is that it actually occurred. We would also want to see that uh, the report is quite close in time to when the event took place. But according to Plato himself, it's almost 9,000 years between him and that <laughs> that event more or less 
And as we see, as we go forward, there's no archaeological evidence for that part. So with the historical method in mind, the case for Atlantis looks rather bleak from the start. Here we are with a single source or two, depending on how you want to define Timaeus and Critias, if it's one account or two accounts. I would not, since it's the same author for both of these texts. We should now ask ourselves if Plato intended this to be a historical account of an actual event. And here I'd say that as things are looking, that's not really the case. Plato was never much of a historian in his writing. While he used several different historical figures and events, they were often adapted to prove a point that Plato was trying to make. Something we saw, for example, in the case of Gaiga's ring back in episode 39. You should go and check that up if you haven't already. It is not only history Plato used in his writing to prove a point, but also disciplines such as cosmology and the creation of man. And we don't see Jimmy Corsetti or Hancock argue that the creation story that we see in Timaeus is an accurate description on how things was created. I don't really believe that Plato intended that to be a literal description either. He's using it to explain thoughts he brought up in his book The Republic. As I mentioned in episode 40, where we read the book after uh, Timaeus, in what was supposed to be a trilogy, this took place the evening after the event that occurred in the Republic. And if you read them carefully, Timaeus and Critias are filled with throwbacks to the Republic. For example, in the Republic, Socrates talks about the different scientists and how they are well, different from each other. Socrates suggests, however, a new way for mathematicians and astronomers to approach science to correctly grasp what he referred to as the principle and ultimately the greater good. By correcting the mistake of not forming a hypothesis and moving toward a more dialectic approach, this science can evolve into being a study of, well, being in itself. The whole idea of cosmology in Timaeus is to demonstrate that the highest form of principle is not only a principle of mere being, but also a principle of coming into being. We learn that cosmology principles are fundamental in learning about the world we can see around us. Now, this is mere uh, Sparknote versions of Plato's approach in Timaeus. And if you are interested in this, I highly recommend reading Thomas Jonsen's essay, The Timaeus on the Principles of Cosmology, and also the book Cosmos and Perception in Plato's Timaeus by Mark Calderon. As you might know, there's a lot more to the topic than I have covered here, but I argue that this is sufficient to demonstrate that it's not meant to be a literal account in uh, either Timaeus or Critias. At the beginning of Critias, as we heard last time, Timaeus even say, I offer my prayer to the god who was just created in my speech. Though, of course, he in fact was created long, long ago. 
hinting at a Greek story tradition where multiple accounts of the god can exist simultaneously and uh, be true for the sake of the story that's going to be told to the audience. So, is the narrative in Critias to be taken as a literal account? Again, we can find the answer by looking closely at the text. If we read the beginning of Timaeus carefully, we will see that Socrates are asking the attendees to place the perfect state that we, he told about in the Republic in a war against an equal foe. Socrates states, That's why, once I delivered the account I'd been instructed to give, I gave you in turn the assignment I'm now asking you to carry out. It is here Hermocrates claims that Critias just so happened to know a story that would fit the assignment at hand. So Critias tells the story about Atlantis as he heard it as a mere 10-year-old boy during a storytelling festival by his then 90-year-old grandfather, Critias the Elder. Now, Critias the Elder heard it from his father, Dropides II, who in turn heard it from Solon, which Plato described as a friend and a relative to the family. Even if this connection might be a bit dubious when people have looked a bit closer at this, Solon in turn heard it while in Egypt by a priest, and we will return to Solon in a short bit here. But with all of this in mind, it's hard to argue that Plato was serious about this being a literal account. Atlantis seems to be mere of a plot device, the evil empire to be bested by Socrates' perfect society. Plato lived in a society of stories, theater, and poetry. Would it strange to borrow from these art forms in his storytelling? He was someone who was quite masterful at the art of rhetoric. Why Plato is adding all these details into the story is to make different points in his storytelling and to give the bad guys a reason for their wickedness. Take, for example, the difference between Athens and Atlantis from a geological perspective. Athens is just made out of earth a stable element that helps the city to stay on course and endure. Compare this to Atlantis, where Poseidon is mixing both earth and water, creating an unstable mixture. Do you remember that Atlantis had two springs, one hot and one cold? Another hint that Poseidon can't really create the stability and balance that the far wiser Athena and Hephaestus can with their creation in Athens. Athens has, for example, only one spring, but it has the same nice temperature all year round. And this helps keep balance and order within the city. We also learn about the origin of Atlantis' depravity. If you recall, in the previous episode, we learned that the downfall of Atlantis was the diluted blood in their veins. Note that the dilution can't happen if there's nothing to dilute with. And of course, it's how Atlantis opened up to trade and started to let foreigners into the city and living there. And as time went by, the spirit and blood of Poseidon that coursed through the vein of this Atlantis 
grew weaker, leaving room for imperialism and greed to grow within the population. This is not a story about a civilization, but a warning of the issues Plato and probably other Athenians saw in their own society at this point in history. And also, why spend the entirety of the Republic building a perfect society in fantasy on paper when he had all this time an example of this perfect historical society all along? He could just have started telling about Atlantis and Athens instead of doing it after the fact. It doesn't really make sense in that way. So in a sense, there's no real need to search for Atlantis since it was never a real place or a location that Plato intended to be a real place. It was a thought experiment and mere fiction, not intended to be taken seriously. But you might ask, what about Solon? Yeah, what about him? Stay tuned and we will be right back after these messages. Welcome back. Now, what about Solon, the wise sage who is the source according to the text of the account? Plato does use Solon to lend credibility to his story. However, it's a bit ironic as we will note further down in this section. From the start, there is an issue with Plato's description of Solon's journey to Egypt. Suppose you are a bit familiar with the account of Solon provided by Herodotus. In that case, you know that Solon traveled to Egypt after providing Athens with his loss. Solon took it up on himself a journey where he traveled as a wise sage in his own right. This specified in History's Book 1, Chapter 29, but Plato has it the other way around. You see, in Timaeus we learn that Solon traveled to Egypt before creating the laws in Athens. In Plato's account, Solon is not yet the scholar he is destined to become, but is in need of a cure of his ignorance. Plato Solon even tries to impress the Egyptian priest with some knowledge of genealogy just to be corrected and learn about his own ignorance to the matters. The Solon in Plato differ from other sources but shares many characteristics with another historical person. In Histories, in Histories Book 2, Chapter 143, we learn about Herodotus' predecessor, Hecateus of Miletus. However, this is not a flattering account, but rather a scathing criticism about uh, the flaws in uh, Hecateus' methods. Plato Solon seems to share the same journey and characteristics as Herodotus Hecateus, and they seem to have the same methodology. So Solon in Plato have the same methodology as Hecateus in Herodotus. Both characters go to Egypt to find answers to their questions and are more or less described as students when doing this and making fools out of themselves. Now, something that might or should cause a bit of concern with someone familiar with the corpus of Plato is how the Egyptian priests are portrayed. The way the priests deconstruct the myth was criticized by Plato or Socrates in Phaedo, especially in chapter 229, where Socrates and Phaedo discuss monsters and how they might look. 
Thaito also writes in Timaeus that the Egyptian priests were reading from the written record. Something that Plato in Phaedrus, again, chapters 274e and 275b, scathingly criticizes. He says that writing is not for learning. It's merely for jogging memory and will not create knowledge from themselves. He writes, You provide your students with the appearance of intelligence, not real intelligence. So reading about a priest with a deeper understanding of the body of work, the priest almost becomes a symbol for false appearance. So the priest should not be viewed in Plato as an authority figure, but hints towards the earlier lessons. Plato don't think you can read text to become wise. You need instead to learn through discussion and learning by listening to other people discuss. What we're told here are lessons on how to not learn history according to Plato. And the real lesson is not by learning the details in a text, but learning the meaning of the content of the text. Some of you might sit there wondering, well, all right, so maybe it was not a literal account, but maybe Plato took some inspiration from a real civilization and just changed a few things. I'm not going to say that this is uh, impossible, but so far have this approach had the same luck as those trying to find the actual location of Atlantis. The Greek civilization was quite young, but um, still they managed to get to an excellent second place after the great amazing Egypt. So Plato would be well aware that there were other civilizations before Greece, and many of them met an end before Greece entered the world scene. But for a civilization to be an inspiration, it must have, well, matched the text to at least some extent. Otherwise, we might have to reclassify those uh, Hallmark movies based on true events as literal accounts on what happened. Now, the civilization most suggested to be the inspiration is the Minoan culture on Crete. On the surface, it looks like it could be a match, but as usual, it all starts to fall apart. That the origin of Atlantis could be the Minoan is not a new claim, but dates back to the early 20th century. In 1900, Sir Arthur Evans started to excavate on the island of Knossos, with two fur persons and 32 workers. After just a few months, Evans had uncovered large part of the palace that he referred to be the Palace of Minos. The Minoan culture and civilization had been discovered. And it was clear it must have been quite powerful. While the term palace might be a little bit of a misnomer, and a more accurate description might be complexes, with different workshops, food processing, storage, and religious and civil administration. We could see it as, well, ancient shopping mall to some extent. But just after a few years after this discovery, an anonymous letter was sent to the British newspaper The Times, which in 1909 published uh, the article with the title The Lost Continent. In the article, the anonymous author argues that the recently discovered palaces of on Knossos were 
evidence that the Atlantis story originated with Mediterranean history and that the Minoan culture was in fact Atlantis. This author would turn out to be the historian K.T. Frost, who in 1913 published a paper in the Journal of Hellenic Studies, trying to expand on this idea. Fast forward to 1939. A Greek archaeologist named Spiridon Marinatos suggested in an article in the Antiquity that the eruption of the Vulcan Thera could be the cause for the Minoans' destruction. In the past, there had been suggestions that At- Atlantis' destruction was inspired by the Thera eruption. Marinatos would later combine the Thera eruption with Atlantis in an article that he published in 1950. However, since it was written in Greek, it only got a little spread before being translated and republished in uh, 1969. So according to Marinatos, the Monoan culture's demise was tied to Thera's eruption, and this collapse would have survived in the Greek mind and would be the origin of the Atlantis story. Now this is similar to the ideas presented by Louis Figuere in 1872, except that Figuere did not have an actual culture to tie this idea to. Now the eruption of Thera was so significant that it actually affected the weather across Europe and even as far as California. So this would have been a significant large eruption maybe or probably similar to Mount Tamboros explosion in 1815. The effect of that eruption led to 1816 being called the year without a summer, creating agricultural distress across the globe. Thera's eruption would undoubtedly have affected the Minoan people since it occurred between 1639 and 1616 BC, based on datings performed by William Friedrich. We're not exactly sure what year it occurred, but somewhere in between there. The issue is not that it happened, but the Minoan culture actually existed for hundreds of years after. Most scholars today believe that uh, the collapse of the Minoan civilization was around... 1320 BCE. And with this in mind, it's hard to argue that there's a clean, clean, clear connection between the Atlantis cataclysm and the end of the Minoan civilization. In his book, Frauds, Myths and Pseudoscience, Dr. Ken Fader points out that large chunk of the story must be altered to make the Minoan theory fit the description we find in Plato's script. Fader actually counted all testable archaeological accounts in Plato's writing and compared these to the Minoan culture. He could find six testable claims in Timaeus and 47 in Critias. Of these testable claims, 80% did not match Plato's description and the Minoan archaeological record. Only one is a precise match and it's that the Atlantis and Minoan complexes must have been a marvel to behold. But this is basically pointless in the larger scope of things, as Fader points out. Then some match with a little bit of special pleading, and there's a couple of cases where we just don't know. So with all of this in mind, does it really make sense to ask where Atlantis is located, according to Plato's teaching? 
It does not, and there's no credible evidence that's been presented yet at least. Before we try to answer a question, we should ensure that the question actually makes sense to answer. But, but we have spent quite some time not dealing with Corsetti ideas that he presents in his YouTube videos. So let's go ahead and see what we have to offer there. Right after these messages. I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show. For as little as 250 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness Monster asked for, you will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine! The benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. You will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support to sign up. Together we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. As we have seen, claiming that we have found the location of Atlantis is to miss the point a bit of Plato's story. But Jimmy Corsetti claimed to have found what he believes Atlantis' actual location, the Riket structure. The issue is that you can throw a dart on a world map and wherever it lands, the likelihood of someone claiming it to be the location of Atlantis is quite significant. People have suggested places all over the world to be the inspiration or the actual location of Atlantis. My favorite are, of course, Olaus Rudbeck in 1679 suggested Gamla Uppsala or Old Uppsala in Sweden to be the location of Atlantis. Then we also have this marvelous Finnish tour guy and quite the eccentric Eeyore Bok who claimed that Atlantis was, of course, in Finland. Now, just because there are numerous different claims of Atlantis location, this does not invalidate Corsetti's claim by themselves. But it do raise a bit of a red flag when we encounter these type of claims. Suppose Sweden, Bahamas, Malta, America, India, all are possible location of Atlantis. In that case, something is a bit off since they are so different in both geological and historical and yeah, they are basically incredible different and a source for concern here. Now, to be fair, Corsetti did not come up with this idea, I believe. He repeats claims made by George S. Alexander and Nathalie Rosen, who uh, made a documentary in 2018 called Visiting Atlantis. I decided to go with Corsetti's video because it's publicly available on YouTube and seems to have a larger spread compared to this rather um, unknown documentary that you find on the network Gaia. Of course, you find it on Gaia, but 
that's a source for more headaches later. Jimmy also is of course influenced by Graham Hancock and Randall Carson, spending quite some time in this video linking Atlantis to the Younger Dryas Impact idea, just as Graham Hancock and the other do. We have yet to deal with YDI, but it will happen after I sort out some scheduling things there. But even if this impact would be a true event, it would not really change much of history. <laughs> We have a lot of data and excavation and research done on the period in question where this event took place. And we know that the chance or likelihood of an advanced society matching Plato's description existing during this time is slim to none. But yes, uh, we can't shake the ghost of Graham Hancock of us yet, at least. But let's look at the claims about the Reichert structure themselves. Corsetti claims that the Reichert structure is a good fit because it has concentric rings. Now, this is true. The formation that consists of an eroded dome has sedimentary rock visible that kind of look like rings. We know quite a lot of the site's geology, and the site has been known since at least 1940, probably a bit earlier. The dome was what I can find at least first described in a journal by Frenchman Richard Mollard in 1948. Later, the French naturalist Theodore Monod launched an expedition there in the 1950s that resulted in further publication on the site itself. And in the beginning, the Reichert Dome was often referred to as the Reichert Crater. And for some time, there was an idea that uh, the structure was formed by a meteoric impact. But today we know a lot more on how this structure was formed. In 2005, for example, Matten et al. published a paper that clearly demonstrated the formation of the dome and the geological process involved. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be a geologist, and I'm sure I'd butcher an explanation of the process of hypothermal infill and magmatism within the structure and how the hypothermal fluidation caused the solving within the drone. So I will leave that to better experts on that matter, but as you kind of understand, the process, well, it's understood among geologists themselves at least. Now the structure has been dated with argon dating to be formed around 92.2 plus minus 2.6 million years ago. But to say the least, we know quite a deal about the geological process in the area. All this makes Corsetti's statement that, quote, in fact, the Reichert structure wasn't even discovered until the Gemini 4 mission in 1965 and is now a common landmark utilized by astronauts. A bit odd, to be honest. Since Corsetti doesn't list any sources for that he used in the video, I can't really say where he got this claim. I can only tell you that it's entirely wrong. Something that makes his explanation of the formation even weirder, because he gets that process almost correct, kind of, except that he says that this can't, of course, be proven. Suspect that Corsetti did not read any of the studies on the dome, but just repeat what he heard from secondary sources that leave a lot of information out. 
showing us that we can all be victims of fraud and the importance of checking the sources and asking experts on their input on the different subjects that we cover. But could there be any other evidence that fit Plato's narrative? Well, according to Corsetti, it seems to be the case. He says, quote, It just so happens that the diameter of its outer circle is approximately 23.5 kilometers or 14.5 miles, which is basically equivalent to the size and dimension provided by Plato when converting from stadia to modern measurements. For example, the circular island of Atlantis was described to be 127 stadia. Now, I'm not sure what translation Corsetti is using, but from my translation, I get the following measurement. And I used several different accounts. All of them say the same. The first ring of water is three stadia. Then we have the first landmass, that's also three stadia. Then we have the second ring of water and the second landmass, that's two stadia each. The third ring of water is one stadia and the inner island has a diameter of five stadia. So if we count everything together, we land on a diameter of 21 stadia. And if we include the first ring of water, we get 27 stadia. And translating this to metrics, we have 4.2 kilometers or roughly 2.6 miles. So this is not near the claim made by Corsetti. Again, I can't find where he got it. I assume it's the Atlantis documentary, but everything written about it leads to his video. So I'm going to blame his on that one. You're free to show your work there, Corsetti. At least we can now put this to rest. The measurement does not add up between Atlantis in Plato and the Reichert structure. Now, I don't want to appear as someone who nitpicks, so I will gloss over some things. For example, he brings up a mountain range, and of course, he claims that it matches Plato's description, but it doesn't really matter much for the story since we can find mountains all over the world that would be able to match this, more or less. The same with the inlet. He claims that on the satellite pictures, we can see an inlet to the south matching Plato's description, but if you look at the satellite image, you will notice that it's a bit to the southwest. I will skip over most of them since they don't really bring much to the table in any sense. And also, it would be too much just me ripping on someone. We're not here to debunk, we're here to learn. We're here to use the scientific method to better ourselves and our understanding of the world around us and our own histories. Now, there are also a couple of obvious things that disqualify Reichert's structure as the site of Atlantis that we have not discussed yet. First of all, Plato gives us the island's location in his text, and it is outside the pillars of Heracles. This is what the Greek called the Strait of Gibraltar, and the origin of this name comes from the tenth labor of Heracles that he performed when, uh, where he went as far west as possible. Now, the Rikas structure lay, lies far south of Gibraltar, 
obviously not outside in it in any sense of that world. Would not the Egyptian Solons or even Plato be able to say south instead of hinting west? It's a pretty strange that these people are supposed to be the wisest of them all. Get simple cardinal points wrong here. Corsetti also quotes Plato, who, according to Jimmes, tells us that Atlantis is now landlocked. I Again, I don't know what translation Corsetti is working from, but uh, from the ones I've read, the quote should be something like this. Though by now earthquake have caused it to sink, and it has left behind the unnavigable mud which obstruct those who sail there. I would argue that it's hard to sail through sand. Note that Plato claims that you can actually sail here. It's just difficult to navigate in the area since it has all of these muddy waters. Furthermore, this geological feature is about 500 kilometers or more than 310 miles from the nearest coastline. It's an understatement to say that this formation is heavily landlocked, but it's not close to the ocean or has been in any point in history. But Corsetti claims something rather strange here, quote, And something else we should consider is that the sands of the Sahara actually originate from the sea. An interesting fact that many people are not aware of. So Corsetti's idea is, uh, or whoever he got this from, is that the sand in Sahara must have been created by the ocean. This is a strange statement for, well, several reasons. Maybe most obviously since we know quite a deal about how deserts form and the Sahara is not the result of land being underwater. While the Sahara ecosystem looked different in the past, it's never been underwater and still neither has it always actually been a desert. But it was formed by extreme temperature shift during night and day that break the rocks, add a lack of rain and erosion of the topsoil combined with saltation, a process that carry minor sand and leaving the greater block behind. The process might vary slightly depending on what desert we are looking at or talking about. Now, even if seawater has not reached the Reichshead structure, a large river didn't actually once flow through the Sahara. In 2019, O'Hara et al. published a paper describing the Trans-Saharan Seaway. This was a large river flow- flowing from the middle of what we know today, as Algeria, down through East Mali, and then exiting in the east of Nigeria and around Benin. This seaway was almost 50 meters deep at some places and contained a wide array of sea life. This river was possible due to the global sea level at the time was a lot higher than it is today. It was actually 300 meters above today's levels. It might be good to add that this existed during the late uh, Creatorus era, meaning this ex- river existed somewhere between 100 to 66 million years ago. I would like you aware that the fact that even when the sea level was 300 meters above today's level, the Reichert Dome is still 500 kilometers from the coastline. And like According to the data I found, the coast has mostly stayed the same for millions and millions of years. This area has never been close to any large 
large body of water. But it doesn't stop Corsetti from throwing numbers around and trying to make his water covered Sahara idea. Combining land rise, sea levels with numbers, I have no idea where he got them from. Some areas indeed see annual land rise. For example, here in Scandinavia, due to it having been pushed down by the giant glacier during the last ice age. We see an annual land rise. We know how large it is historically, and we can use data to calculate where the coastline have been throughout the ages in softwares like ArcGIS. And that way we can see in the maps and during excavations where the coastline must have been. For example, during the Viking Age, harbors at Vestergaard on Gotland or in Paviken were located, of course, by the water, but we find them a couple hundred meters up. So, you know, we are quite sure on how the land rise have been and how rapid it was. And we can use that to backtrace the coastline. But we don't see this process in Africa since it did not have giant glaciers over there to push the continent down. Corsetti made the same mistake as Hancock. They look at the graphs and data and then try to interpret it without really knowing what they have just read. That's why you need an expert. So Corsetti is making the same mistake as Hancock. They look at a graph and then try to apply that data without really comprehending it to their theories and texts, getting it quite a lot wrong and don't really understand sea level rise and land rise and the difference between them and the different forces that uh, operate these processes in nature. And we should, of course, not forget archaeological evidence. And there have been excavations, especially since there's been finds of Acheulean industries within the outer part of the Raikat dome. Acheulean is a type of hand axe technology that's maybe most associated with Homo erectus, but was used until the Neanderthals too. The technology disappeared around 130,000 years ago. Then there's find of your typical Saharan arrowheads and later iron spearhead within the area. Something that we could expect from hunter-gatherers to have and get lost. And well, the area has actually been populated in throughout history. I must admit that the archaeology in the area seems to be relatively sparse, but from the excavation and surveys, Nothing really indicates a city like Atlantis existed there. You think about the artifacts that should still be there if Plato's description was accurate. In that count, each ring had a thick, thick wall with covered with different metals, or each ring had each one metal. Just imagine this sturdy, large metal wall must have been there must have been other buildings, the roads, the harbors, metalwork, masonry, all the other things that were expected to find in a civilization this large. Just imagine how much food and waste a city like this must have produced. Well, I've excavated relative small settlements, and even there we find tons, literal tons of animal bones, broken pottery, and ways that people leave behind, signs that people live there. And we're just talking a couple of houses here. And we're just talking of 
about a couple of houses here, but nothing of this had been found in the Rykat structure or its vicinities. So Corsetti using a bit of special pleading to solve this, claiming that these things are not here because, well, Atlantis was destroyed and wiped off the Earth by a great flood. But it's hard to believe that a flash flood, even a gigantic flash flood, <laughs> would have wiped absolutely everything that left Julian hand axes and Neolithic arrowheads. And from the arrowheads I managed to find that were found unspecified where within the area, but within the area, that these arrowheads seems to be from around the time where Atlantis should have existed. So it's a bit weird that they survive and was used in this great advanced civilization while the great walls literally covered in metal was wiped away. Uh, that does not really make sense, at least to me. Your mileage might differ there. Now, after spending quite some time investigating Atlantis and the Rykat structure, I think there's not much left of Corsetti's evidence. When being looked uh, through a neutral lens, each claim has been sufficiently disproven. I believe this might be Jimmy's most prominent issue. He's not going out looking for the truth there, really. He, just like Hancock and many others within this field, picks an idea and then starts to select different data all around that fits his preferred narrative. As I mentioned, Corsetti does bring up some of these things that we talk about, but as you might have noted, he had either taken them out of context or made significant changes to the facts themselves to fit his idea. He even rewrites Plato's own words so the story will fit what he's telling you. So I hope you, Jimmy, Jimmy Corsetti, listen to this or read the article that I publish on the website and maybe rethink your approach. Or even better, you put out a correction on all of this. I'd be happy to lend a hand to uh, verify your sources. I'm happy to provide my sources. You find them on the website, diggingupancientaliens.com. Look at the episode page. Everything is listed there. Or any other support that I might be able to give you. But Jimmy, there's hope. I believe in you. I think you will do the right thing. Thank you for listening. And on this bombshell, we will close out the episode. But we're not finished just yet. Remember that you can find sources, resources, and further reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find my contact info if you want to write that all caps email I know you're hankering for. You can leave a comment down below or just reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, if it still exists, <laughs> Instagram. I also post content on TikTok as often I manage to do that at least. And of course, you can see this on YouTube and you can support the show by giving a great review firsthand, but you can also become a patron. You can also support the Archaeological Podcast Network, become a member there. It will trickle down to me in the end too, and you get access to all the network's shows and bonus content. So that's something maybe worth looking into. But here I will leave you for this time. Our intro was made by Sandra Mertelor. Our outro is by the great, amazing Swedish punk band Tralskruv. The song is named Tinfoil Hat, but 
sung in Swedish. And links to these authors can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. <laughs> Ni tycker att jag redan är besatt Men jag skyddar mig för jag har foliehand Och så säger ni Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com slash support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com slash support to read more information and sign up right there. 